So, from Exodus 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. Verse 17, so you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through, the, uh, pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. 
It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for bringing your family together. Thank you that we are a family united by blood, Lord. Not that anyone's blood could pay for all the problems in the world, Lord, only Jesus's. And we thank you that we will, we will celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus this morning. We will share in his body and blood. And thank you for bringing your word out to us, Lord, we pray that it would take effect, take root in our hearts, that we'd want to take it and run with it, Lord, and change our lives based on your faithfulness to us. So when you give us ears to hear, Lord, eyes to see, and your spirit within us, so that we can comprehend your word and we can put it into action. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you yet, Lord, someone still figuring out Christianity and faith, someone struggling with some big questions, Lord. When you come and encourage them and comfort them and show them who you really are. And may the rest of us be a witness to your people, to this land, to the nations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a little bit of an introduction. You might not actually know me. Uh, my name's Ben. I'm the part-time admin at the church. I've been doing that for quite a few months now. And as of September last year, I started a graduate diploma in theology. I'm very privileged to be able to work part-time for the church and study part-time. You'll be pleased to know that I had two exams at Christmas, one in Hebrew, one in church and mission, and I got the results back and passed both. So I must be doing what God wants me to. Thank you. <laughs> And what we're doing on these fourth Bring and Share Sundays is we're going to have a rotation of people looking at different passages so that we can learn more about communion, what it is, why we take it, and um, what it is that Jesus has done for us. So we'll be looking at the Passover this morning. You're going to see a slide come up, a fun fact about the Passover. I was trying to find some interesting information stats-wise about maybe the numbers of pilgrims to, to Jerusalem. Quite hard to find something like that. So anyway, interestingly enough, I found a, a group concerned with food waste, and you can see the facts and figures for yourself. $313 billion, is it, of, uh, of money spent on food which goes to waste. However many thousands of tons of food that get left over from the Passover. The Jews are a committed and faithful group. They still observe this every year. And do you know if they observe the Passover outside of Jerusalem, they pray together that the following year they could have it in Jerusalem just to make it all the more special. They're a happy and joyful people. And the Passover is their biggest celebration. It's the one that most of them take part in and look forward to and enjoy. And you can tell that it's a right riot, a right party from the amount of food that goes to waste, from the amount of money spent on it. This is a good time. And it's something they look forward to and enjoy. So let's learn from the Passover, let's learn from our uh, Jewish friends today, this morning. So we've looked at Exodus, what is going on here, you ask yourself, you might be relatively new to the Old Testament, or you might have read it before but still think, I don't quite understand everything going on here. We've got all these instructions, we've got this uh, angry God seemingly uh, trying to kill the firstborns. Well let me give you a little bit of a catch up so we can figure out where we are in the storyline. 
Genesis and Exodus have been books about God creating a covenant community for himself. You might know, you might have heard of Abraham, a man who believed God in faith when he said that he was going to bless him and through him all nations will be blessed, that he'll have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham's grandson, we have Jacob, um, who has another son, Joseph, who you might have heard of his fabulous story where he gets sent off, sold by his brothers as a slave into Egypt. Ends up in a fun twist of irony, becoming pretty much second in command of all Egypt, becoming second only to Pharaoh, in charge of everything. Saves the land through a famine, saves his people. And from that point, we arrive at today's story. We've had 400 years of Abraham's descendants, of all Jacob's brothers and family, living in Egypt. Things were good for a while, but then that Pharaoh who recognized the, the good things that J Jacob had done changed, and the new king of Egypt cared nothing for the Israelites or God's people, and saw them as a threat really as well. So as we arrive to think about Moses and Aaron today and what the Lord said to them, God raised them up because God's people were suffering under the Egyptians. They were being burdened, they were slaves pretty much. The Egyptians wanted to um, completely ostracized them, keep them separate, and really put them under a hard time, made them be slaves and, and build things for them and abuse them. So this is, this is the story we arrive at today, with God's people having cried out for the longest time, when will you save us, God? We're under a heavy burden here in Egypt. When are you going to deliver us? And when we think about this Strange. It seems strange in our culture and idea, this idea of now God's going to suddenly, in verses 12 and 13, kill the, the firstborn of, of man and beast in, in Egypt. We, we have to remember that this is actually the tenth plague of a series of plagues, signs and wonders that God's been performing in Egypt. Now, what's your idea of the God of the Old Testament? I hear this tossed around far too much, that there was this... There's this loving, forgiving, tolerating Jesus of the New Testament, accept everyone, don't judge anyone. God of the Old Testament, angry, wrathful guy, you know, the, the angry kid on, a, on an anthill with a magnifying glass, just torturing things for the sake of it. Where, where, what's this random wrath uh, all about? Well, turn with me, will you, back to Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to get ourselves just a little more context to understand why... In this tenth plague, God is going to kill the firstborns. So as we turn back to chapter 4 of Exodus, let's look at verse 22. Which is God telling Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Verse 23. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. You see, the fact is, Egypt and Pharaoh, the king, had had many chances already. He'd seen lots of amazing works by God. We'd had all the previous nine plagues. We're not going to run through them. That's a bit of Old Testament trivia for you to figure out. Every opportunity. Pharaoh had more than ten chances, more than ten plagues. More than, there were ten plagues, but he had even more chances than that to repent, to recognize that God was God, to let his people go. It was a reasonable request. God didn't just randomly start attacking and destroying the Egyptians. Pharaoh had it clear as day. Will you let my people go and worship me 
and serve me in the wilderness. Stop treating them like slaves, or else there is going to be consequences. Pharaoh chose to harden his heart, and we arrive at a series of worsening plagues right now to the death of the firstborn. Does that still seem a little extreme to you? How how can God just murder and have this genocide across a nation of firstborns? Well, think of it this way. We just read God calling and identifying Israel as his firstborn. You see, when God selected a people for himself through Abraham, he wasn't just making a community or a nation. He was generating a new family, a prosperous family of love and blessings to change the whole earth. And so we see the righteous fury, the the defending love of a father now. We see God as a parent ready to strike Egypt because Egypt was ready to strike Israel. You know, one of Pharaoh's first decrees was any any new Hebrew babies that are born, any young male Israelites that you find, kill them. He he instructed the midwives to kill Israel any new babies of the, of the Israelites. And so God was defending his people and bringing the consequence to Pharaoh. He had every opportunity to repent. It was laid out for him. So that's where we come to the first point of looking at the Passover today, the what. What is it that actually happened back then? You can look at your handouts. We see here in verses 12 and 13 that God was saving his people. He was bringing um, a judgment on the Egyptians, a true and and fair enough judgment that they had resisted for a long time. God was going to do what he said he was. And we see in verse 23 also, let's read that together, back to chapter 12, verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and strike you. You see, there's more going on here than just God sparing his people, than just a father who heard his child be threatened and defending it. God saved his people from himself. You see, Israel themselves weren't totally guilt-free. Israel themselves had spent this 400 years living in Egypt, mixing with them and their culture. No doubt they would have taken uh, wives and had families that were intermixed with the Egyptians. No doubt they might have been following the gods of, of Egypt. I'm sure lots of you can recall your primary school history lessons and think of some of the gods that Egypt had. These were detestable to God. He, he, first commandment is that there should be no other gods before him. Second commandment, that you shouldn't make any images of any other gods. Egypt was doing that. Imaginably, Israel was doing that as well. What's the difference we see? God gives Israel a way out. They don't have to come under that same curse, that same wrath. They can have their firstborns spared by this interesting idea of the the blood on the lintel and and the doorposts. Again, it seems like such a strange foreign thing to us, some kind of ritualistic blood sacrifice. What's that all about? Well, let's, let's look through verses 1 to 11 together as we move on to the second point. How is it that God saved his people? He, he saved them from himself. It was his righteous wrath as a holy God to take out anything that is against him. He would spare his people as long as they did this. We see in verses 1 to 11, God's prescribing the ordinance to be carried on. He says, doesn't he, in verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, keep it until the 14th day, and kill it, and take that blood and apply it to the doorposts. 
we learn later in the Levitical law in the Mosaic Covenant of the importance of blood. God says that the life of something is in its blood. And we remember, don't we, all the sprinkling of blood that took place to purify the tabernacle and all the sacrifices that had to take place to atone for people's sins. None of that's clear just yet at this point in the story, this early on in Exodus. But the, what is clear is that God was providing a very certain way out for his people, a very clear and obvious instruction. Do this thing, you might not really understand why or what's going on, but the difference between Israel and Egypt will be, when God comes to bring his judgment, will he see that blood on the doorposts or not? You see at the end of that night of judgment there's going to be the same amount of deaths in Israel as in Egypt, but the difference would be, will the deaths be a lamb or, or the firstborn son? Now, I'm not going to challenge the, the age-old rendering of, of Passover. That's pretty well established. But I was looking into the Hebrew, of course, of this, of this verb, pass, passing over. And if you take it in a more metaphorical sense, the Hebrews loved their metaphors, then it's got some kind of bird imagery to it. It, it, it sounds sort of similar to when we look at, at the beginning of Genesis and we have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and later in Isaiah, the idea of covering over with wings. So it's actually quite a beautiful picture, the way that God has given to save his people. It's not just a, a passive, kind of forgetting or ignoring, passing over, but actually it's a much more active, much more protecting and covering over. So you could think of it as the cover over. In fact, it says in verse 23 that the Lord will not permit the destroyer to strike you. It's not just like you get off scot-free. It's actually God himself protecting you. The Israelites were told to stay in their house all night and not come out because God was, in a sense, the spirit protecting that place from the judgment. He was there with them, abiding with them. His presence was what sheltered them. It was God between them and their judgment. It was God interposing himself through somehow through this blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintels. So why? Let's look at our point number three. We've seen that God has saved people from his own wrath. We've seen that he's done it through this interesting means of, of, of blood and sacrifice. We're going to understand a little bit more about why he's done this now. Uh, does it seem, if, if, if you accept and believe that there is a holy God who needs everyone to be perfect, then why isn't everything just gone and gotten rid of? Why is, why is there still sin? Why does God choose to pick a nation back in the Old Testament and run with them and deal with them through all their problems? Well, let's look at verses 14 through 20. Glance at them again with me. The first thing God has to say about why they should do this, how they should do it, Verse 14, so this shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout the generations, as an everlasting ordinance. You see, interestingly enough, God wanted it to be a party. He wanted it to be a celebration, a feast. You know what a feast is? When we have so much food that we can't even eat at all, when we feel full to brimming, when we're satisfied and satisfied. The first thing he asks them to do is to remember this, to keep doing it, actually, to do it every year. At this time of year again, he sets up in those verses the Feast of Unleavened Bread and says, do, do this again and again. 
It's not like in some weird way they're re-sacrificing the Passover lamb, they're re-saving themselves from judgment. No, God says there it's a memorial in verse 14. He wants them to remember his goodness. And we said, we said earlier that the reason God said to Pharaoh, let my people go, was so that they may worship me and serve me in the desert. That's the reason God did it. He saves a group of people to himself. Not just so that they can go and do their own thing and become Egypt too, out in the wilderness and become worse than them. No, God saves them so that they can share what he's done and be a celebrating people, be a happy people who remember how great he's been. And indeed, this Passover linked with then, you might recall, the, uh, the Red Sea parting and the Egyptian armies getting drowned but Israel being saved, all of that together has, has held as a, a very famous, very celebrated part of Jewish history. That's what there are songs about in the Old Testament, that's what the, the focus is of on God's faithfulness. That's one of their key highlights of their own history, of their own timeline, is how God brought them out of Egypt and spared them. This is a happy thing, not just some solemn observance, but something to generate so much joy in them. But it's more than that, though. As we look down at uh, verses 18 and 19, we see God giving more instructions about how... So, so there in verse 19, the same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. So recall that God's people had been in Egypt for this 400 year period. No doubt we had some Egyptians mixing in there. No doubt we had other cultures drawn to the way Israel was living. And what God's saying here, and we see more regulations about this later in Exodus, is that other people were perfectly welcome to come and join in the blessings of Israel. Even the Egyptians themselves, were they to just apply this blood to the doorposts, they would be spared the judgment. You see, God saves people, not just so that he can judge others. Actually, it's God's desire that everyone be saved and spared unto himself. And so this is a God-shaped community. God wants to create an even bigger family. It's, it's laid down later in Exodus. It's perfectly okay for foreigners, strangers among you, to enjoy the Passover with Israel, as long as they're circumcised, as long as they show a desire and make an effort to want to be included in the way that Israel lived if they wanted to truly start following God's law as he'd laid out, then they would be perfectly okay to join in the festivities. So that's another great thing that God's doing. It's all for his glory and praise, that he's generating an, a global community of people who love him and celebrate what he's done. So let's think a little bit more now in point number four about what it is the people did. It's all well and good having God lay out a way to be saved. It's all well and good God judging the evil and sparing the faithful. But they had a responsibility, didn't they, the people of God? They had an action to take. And let's look at from verses 21 onwards. Moses is actually a, a very good example here of what it means to teach and to preach. He's taken what God said and he's fed it to the people. He didn't just repeat what God said word for word, but he worked it out. He applied it. He made it practically uh, useful. This, this extra information about the basin, the, the, the hyssop and, and the, the sprinkling, not necessarily what God said, but Moses was 
taking the means to understanding what God had said and giving it circumstantial, situational use. So that's an encouragement to anyone who wants to teach and preach me also. So what's the important thing to learn about their response? Moses makes it very clear, doesn't he, from verse 22 and 23, that you should apply that blood, that none of, it's, uh, none of the lamb is left over until the morning as well. So what we see is that it wouldn't have been good enough to just accept that there was a way out, that we could be spared God's judgment and wrath by this lamb sacrifice. Israel couldn't just rest in thinking, well, God's chosen us, he, he saved us, he'll, he'll keep us from harm. They had their active part to play. It was God, 100%, who provided the way of escape. But it required a full act, a full committed faith of God's people to, to put that blood on the doorposts and to stay in their house until morning. If they were to come out and roam about the night, who, who knows what trouble they might have encountered, they might have been destroyed, the Egyptians might have attacked them, it was part of it, to take it in faith, to stay inside, to believe God's work was complete, to apply that blood. And we have a comment on this faith of God's people and Moses in the New Testament. It should be on the screen, we'll just refer to Hebrews 11, verses 26 and 28 which says that Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. It was a command to follow, it was something to just do, but it wasn't enough just to do it. Moses and God's people had to do it on faith, believing that God would do what he said he would. That's the meaning of all this haste. That's the meaning partly of the unleavened bread, of the wearing of the sandals, the cloak and the staff. They had to really be ready and believe that in just a few hours' time after this, they were going to be kicked out of Egypt and pretty much have to run for their lives. They couldn't sit around not believing that would happen. They, they couldn't fall asleep. They had to be ready to go. They had to trust what God had said and do what he said. And then we get a wonderful picture of the, uh, another view into the joy that Jewish people have that we can share as well in verse 27 and 8 of the real response that we should share in. What does it say, verse 28? The children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And just before that as well, at the end of verse 27, the people bowed their heads and worshipped. They counted it an utter privilege that God should choose a nation out of all the nations on the earth to take delight in, to spare and save. They recognized they weren't that different than anyone else other than a covenant promise of God, other than God saying, I'm going to do great things with you. I'm going to uphold my end of the bargain, even when you don't. So their first response was to bow their head in worship and say, we are not worthy, God. This is amazing what you're doing. And then, very importantly, they went away and did so. We've had God tell everyone, we've had Moses tell everyone, and then comes the time for the many thousands of God's people to actually do it. And that's what, 
it took them trusting God's past faithfulness that he had made that promise that he was going to keep it and it took them trusting that God will bring about his future for them, their hope. So bearing in mind some of those uh, interesting essentials of the Passover, we're going to bring that into a a New Testament context and, and think about how the Passover should influence our ideas about communion. So I had an Amazon driver turn up at the office this week. We get many Amazon deliveries. It's such a convenient way to order stuff for the church, forgive us. But they don't, they don't often make much conversation, so I was quite taken aback when the Amazon driver delivered this package of Jaffa cakes. And uh, it's a staple of the biscuits, you're, you're welcome. And, and he, he said, is this for communion? And I, I, I was kind of stunned and, and thought, oh, why is he asking that? I don't really know what to say. They, they don't usually make conversation. No, 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 we, we, use, we use crackers and, and, and grape juice. What, what else? And he kind of scoffed as he left the building, went back to his van and, and said, uh, well, why don't you update and get yourself into the 21st century? Modernize a bit, live a little, use the Jaffa cakes. <laughs> so we've got Jaffa cakes this morning. No, no, no. <laughs> but it... It got me thinking, what is the important thing about communion? Is it that we try and modernise it? Is it that we try and update it and make it relevant? Or as we're considering this morning, is it that we look back to the roots that it has far back in the Old Testament, far back to God's faithfulness, and what Jesus turned it into, something so much bigger than it originally was for God's people? So when Jesus is sat there at the Last Supper, we see that account in several of the Gospels, one thing he's doing is he's bridging the Passover into into its new covenant meaning. He's taking those same symbols, the bread and the wine, which Jewish people enjoyed as they remembered the Passover, and he was saying, actually, now it's my body and it's my blood. Not just that God had spared them out of Egypt, but taking on a whole new future, that God was saying... Jesus was saying, this is something I'm now doing for you. This goes far beyond what it was only about in the Old Testament. Do you realise that the season, the time of year, that the dates that Jesus entered Jerusalem, that Jesus was crucified, was at this time of year? It was at the Passover. It was during that festival of unleavened bread. And in fact, it was on that first day, the same day that God said the lamb should be slain at twilight and that blood applied. So that's the context of Jesus taking the Last Supper with his disciples. All his miracles, all his teaching have built up to this point where he's going to ride into Jerusalem, where he's going to sacrifice himself for everybody. So what in in communion we recognize that Jesus has saved us from himself. Here's another important point to think about as we will engage in communion shortly. Jesus hasn't just saved us Christians from a bad way of living, from from ourselves or or from our sin. Just like God's wrath on Egypt and Israel, Jesus has saved us from himself. What does it say in John 5? It should be on the screen. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do you realise if you call yourself a Christian, or if you happily deny the existence of God, one day you're going to meet Jesus, and he'll have something to say to you. 
He is the ultimate judge. He is the one who will spare you or send you away. And what does it say also in, in Matthew 25? It should be on the screen again, verses 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus, in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and he will put the goats on his left. Jesus is talking here about the second coming. It doesn't matter if it's when Jesus comes back, or if it's when you face God earlier than that. The point is, everyone's either a goat or a sheep. You will end up on the right or the left. In communion, we're realising that it's very black and white when it comes to Jesus. He said, you're mine or you're not. And it is curious to look back at the Hebrew of that lamb, that Passover lamb in Exodus 12, when it said it should be a lamb without blemish from the first year. The Hebrew word isn't actually very specific about a lamb. It just kind of means a flock, a herd, and it could be a goat or a lamb. And so then the Hebrews and the Israelites developed this kind of thinking about the sheep and goats, that they're quite similar, they're hard to distinguish. They're just subcategories of, of their species. They're quite similar, really. And so Jesus, speaking into that, says, you might not be able to tell the difference between sheep and goats, but when it comes to the end... I will judge, I will know the heart, I will know who's mine and who isn't. So can you say you're on the right side with Israel, with God's people, with Jesus, of himself when he comes back? I've got good news and bad news. The good news is Jesus is coming. The bad news is Jesus is coming. How did he do this? Um, as we think some more about Jesus' sacrifice for us and what we, what we dwell on in communion, how does it relate to all this Exodus stuff? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. should be on the screen again. Get rid of the old yeast, says Paul, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There's many other allusions in the Gospels and in Revelation to Jesus being the true fulfilment of this Passover festival. You see, it was, it was truth and it was real back then that these people, that God's people celebrated the Passover. They still celebrate it today. But God had so much more in mind. It, back then, as it will always be, the true meaning of that lamb that gets sacrificed, that blood that's placed in between us and God really has been Jesus. His identity is the lamb, the, the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth. That's how he's done it. He's sacrificed himself for us. And let's look as, as well at Re Revelations 5, verses 6 and 9. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the beautiful thing Jesus has done for us. That's what we were singing about earlier, Christ being enough for us, him being our saviour, him being our Passover lamb. 
we're saved and spared from Jesus' wrath. We get included in his wonderful family. And it's not by anything we've done. It is entirely by the work, the perfect life, and the perfect death of Jesus. Only his sinless, unblemished, spotless lamb nature was able to cleanse away all of our sin and satisfy God's wrath for us. Why would God do this? Another thing to consider as we approach communion, that we've been spared from Jesus' wrath, we're saved only by his works. Jesus has saved us for himself. In the same way that God handpicked a people for himself in the Old Testament, he chose to make a covenant, not because the people were such a mighty nation, they were quite a small and weak nation. He turned them into being great people so that his namesake would be proclaimed, so that he would be recognized. And in the same way, Jesus saves us for himself so that we might worship him just like the Israelites did, their first reaction to hearing that truth. It's so that vertically we can have a restored relationship with God, things can get, get back to being the right way they should have been. That we're his workmanship, we're made in God's image, we're supposed to enjoy him, love his people and take care of this earth. That is fixed with Jesus' sacrifice. That is the beginning of a life for Christians, free from that power of sin. And horizontally as well, we're invited into that family, we're invited into that community. The Israelites have a wonderful and interesting culture. All these amazing stories of the Old Testament, they celebrate. Well, don't we have more to celebrate? Shouldn't we be a more vibrant and happy and joyful community, knowing that we're free now from that slavery that's, that, that was on us in Egypt? In a metaphorical sense, we've been brought out of the Egypt of our sins. We've been taken away from that slavery to our own lifestyle, to our own temptations, to our own urges, and instead brought out to serve, worship, and love God. That's why Jesus has done this. And let's look at Revelations chapter 7 and a few verses there to think a bit more about this. It says, verses 14 to 16, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger and never again will they thirst. This was the point of Jesus' sacrifice. This is what we dwell on in communion. That God hasn't saved us. God didn't save his people in the Old Testament so that they could just return to Egypt or so that they could just become another Egypt themselves. God hasn't saved us so that we return to a life of sin. We're brought under a new slavery, but that's a freedom because it's to Jesus and it's to God. We are to serve him. We're sheltered by him and his presence. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup... Jesus' promise that never again will we hunger, never again will we thirst. There's those wonderful words in the Gospels where Jesus says, Come to me, if you're thirsty, have a drink, and you'll never thirst again. That's what we should remember as we approach communion. Jesus' body and blood for us, so that we may never hunger or thirst again in this life or forever in the future. It's an exciting thing that we've got to look forward to. 
Communion isn't just about remembering the past and God's faithfulness. Just like God's people here in the Passover passage look forward to that promise of the land he was going to provide their people, of the offspring that he was promised to them. We have an even greater promise to look forward to as we think about Jesus in communion. Yes, we've been saved. Yes, we're presently um, enjoying God's presence. But in the future, we have a wonderful future to look forward to where all tribes, nations and tongues will be brought together. An even wider, more inclusive community than Israel ever was. Something of everyone in it. And that's when God will wipe away every tear and we'll be in a perfect world again. That is a reason to celebrate. That is a reason Christians should have an even more joyous festival than the Passover. Because we don't just celebrate a historic event, but we trust that the new covenant that Jesus made is sufficient for our past, present and future. So what's our response and our responsibility, just like God's people decided that they should do what he said and worship? What should we be doing? Well, don't forget the context of communion that Jesus had shared this at the Last Supper after he had washed his disciples' feet, after he'd been teaching with them and walking with them for years. Part of communion, part of coming to Christ, part of faith and being a Christian is discipleship and sharing the gospel and evangelism. Just like God's people in the passage were told to share it with their children whenever they asked, what's this service about? And whenever other nations were curious and wanted to come in, God said, explain it to your children, share it down the generations. Let other nations in if they are happy to join in our ways. And in the same way, when Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him, bundled up with that is also a responsibility to share that good news as we go out to this world, that we're remembering him together, that we're serving him together. And you have a responsibility. If you call yourself a Christian and you delight in the feast on, on Jesus' blood and body, then Paul, Paul says to judge yourself and not do it in an unworthy manner. And what did we see in the passage? That anyone who doesn't get rid of the leaven is to be cut off if you think of leaven as being like wickedness and intrusions and viruses and all the bad stuff that pervades our heart and our nature day by day. We're told to get rid of that. We're told to try our very best to scour every crack and crevice of the house and chuck out every bit of leaven. If there's even any left, then you're not perfect. God doesn't want part of you. But in communion, we can have our hearts... We can have our lives as bread before God, all leaven removed. That's something we should do as we examine ourselves, is present our bodies before God, recognize afresh that we have some leaven to deal with. We have some sinful tendencies to get rid of. We have some things to repent of, some things to change in our life. And don't forget, it takes that application of blood. That was the most important thing. That's what spared God's people and made the difference between Egypt and Israel. It's not good enough that Jesus has died. It's not enough to just say, thanks Jesus that you died. That's all good then. I can carry on living the way I want to live. 
No, it took God's people then putting it on their house and it takes us Christians now in faith claiming that sacrifice as our own believing that Jesus' death as the Passover lamb was sufficient and then enjoying a changed life by his spirit having shared in his body this is why we come to church isn't it? you might not take communion every week but the point is we come here to worship as one to serve God as one to commune as one as one in Jesus' body and then to go out again and mission as one so as we dwell on these truths in communion it's so important for us to remember that more than any Old Testament miracle that God did we look to Jesus we look to the cross and what he did historically we're dependent upon continually God didn't call his people to keep re-sacrificing the Passover lamb that was a one-time thing in Egypt they were just called to remember and to change again we're not called to re-crucify Jesus in communion that's not what the bread and the wine is about in fact we're called to re-crucify ourselves and decide whether we're going to continue to follow him whether we want a part in his body so I'm going to ask that uh, someone would bring the elements to the front so that we can begin to engage in a time of sharing in that and we'll just have one last thought as we look at Revelations 19 which will be up on the screen which says verses 7 to 9 then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder praise the Lord for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns let us be glad and rejoice let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb yes the Passover is an incredible feast yes it's an enjoyable thing to remember God's faithfulness but we have the greatest celebration of all to look forward to as we commune now we're celebrating how we will celebrate in the future this wedding feast of the Lamb what a glorious thing to look forward to don't forget there'll be so many different kinds of people there God's glory cannot be contained in just one group in just one nation his worship demands that people from all over the globe come and share in this and this is the fantastic thing we are united in that blood in that body in that blood in Jesus the Lamb we will be invited to that wedding feast one day a feast that shall never end oh Lord what you've done for us is so unspeakably wonderful your loving kindness on us is more than we deserve it's your blood Lord that separates us from your good side and your bad side we love you Lord and as we've shared this time and this body and blood together we recognize that we're part of something bigger than the individual something bigger than what you were doing in the past something so much bigger what you're doing for the future bringing your kingdom on earth and bringing a change of heart to all your people so please bless these people Lord send us from here in peace 
in your strength, Lord. Change our hearts, Lord, to conform our ways and to use this body we have now. It's your body, Jesus, in a way that's pleasing to you. Not to walk to places Jesus wouldn't walk, not to see things that Jesus wouldn't want to see, not to do things with our hands that Jesus wouldn't want to do. But in all things, to keep our joy and to rejoice that you have done it, Jesus. You have overcome. You are worthy. And we thank you for all this in your name and we love you, Lord. Amen.